Good morning, Northbrook. I, for some reason, I forgot I was supposed to be praying. I knew I was. I was actually reviewing it before, and then I thought, okay, Andrew will have prayer, and then I'll go up, and I was talking to John out in the hallway and kind of catching up on his life and our life, and and uh, she got done praying, and I thought, oh, I mean, she got done reading, and I thought, oh, no, I'm supposed to be praying. So then people in the back started looking at me, but... That's how I was also reminded I was supposed to be praying. So I'm glad you're here. It's still cold outside, but have you looked ahead a week? Yeah. Supposed to be up in the 30s, so then you can put on your short sleeves and your shorts and go run around outside. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 5 is where we're going to be again this morning. I'm going to uh, read verses 1 to 10 again like last week. And, uh, and then we'll look at the second part of this passage. So I'll be reading out loud chapter 5 verses 1 to 10. And I invite you to follow along as I read. Let's back up. Let's go back to verse 14 because I hate jumping into the middle of a thought. So let's go back to 14 of chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for themselves, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. We're going to do a little review this morning from last week. This is part two of what was uh, part one last week. And if you remember in this portion of the letter, the writer of Hebrews communicates Jesus's qualifications as they relate to his position as high priest over the people of God. And as you think back to that, if you have any recollection of last week, According to the Old Covenant, priests who served in the tabernacle and later the temple had to come from a particular tribe. 
of Israel. They had to come from the tribe of Levi and they had to be descendants of Aaron in order to offer sacrifices. Those who were part of the tribe of Levi, not all of them were allowed to be priests. Some of them were responsible for carrying the tabernacle, setting it up, tearing it down. They had different responsibilities, but the ones of Aaron's family were the ones who were chosen to be the priests. Also, God had established a separation of powers in the, uh, in the nation of Israel. He had promised that a king would come. That king would sit on the throne of David forever, and he would be the lion of the tribe of Judah. The king would come from the line of Judah. By being from the line of Judah, it meant that he could not be a priest because priests weren't allowed, I mean, kings weren't allowed to serve as priests. Priests were not people who were chosen to be kings. They came from Judah. So this righteous king who would rule on the throne of David didn't meet either of the main qualifications of being a priest. So looking forward to Jesus then, knowing that he is from the line of Judah, the tribe of Judah, and the line of David, the kingdom, uh, the, the throne of David, as is very clear in Matthew's genealogy in particular, it made it impossible for Jesus under the old covenant to serve as mankind's mediator between God and man, or at least it would seem that way. But as we learned last week, the author reminds us of Psalm 2, where he quotes and says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That passage in Psalm 2 prophesies a coming king who would judge the wicked and rule in power. And even the Jews believe that was the coming Messiah. And then he also quotes from Psalm 110, where in verse six he says here, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And in Psalm 110, David is prophesying, looking forward to a righteous king who is also a priest. This king priest that David speaks of in Psalm 110 is not from the line of Judah. He's not, I mean, he is from the line of Judah. He's not from the line of Aaron. This coming priest over the people of God that David prophesied is not from the line of Aaron. He's from the order of Melchizedek. It doesn't mean he's a descendant of Melchizedek. It means that he comes from the same kind of priestly line as Melchizedek. One who had no beginning and one who had no end. One who is a king. Melchizedek was a king priest. And David prophesies of this coming person who will rule over the nation of Israel He will judge the wicked. He will rule in the presence of God at the right hand of God. And he will serve as God's high priest over the people forever. So David, as I tried to point out last week, actually his entire prophecy exists. He prophesies from within the old covenant time period. He is a 
a king who is writing about a future king, but he's writing within the boundaries of the Old Covenant, the time frame. But he goes before the Old Covenant to talk about Melchizedek and goes beyond the Old Covenant to the future to speak of a king priest that would come from his line ultimately. So David essentially here in Psalm 110 blows up the Old Covenant as the Holy Spirit moves in him to look forward to one who comes in a new covenant. And the argument that the writer of Hebrews uses here, or that he puts together, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. That Jesus is the one who is God's son, who sits at the right hand of God, chosen by God, anointed and exalted by God to reign as king, as well as being anointed as the great high priest for the people of God. And Jesus is the one who will judge the enemies of God while he mercifully pleads on behalf of the people whom God has established, with whom God has established a new covenant through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. This great high priest who is also king is the one who offered himself as the lamb. I don't know if if you've thought about that. I remember when that idea first was presented to me that the Old Testament priest would come with a lamb, but in a sense, the priest himself had no skin in the game. He would simply bring the dead animal and offer it on behalf of himself and behalf of the people. But Jesus, as the great high priest of God, appointed by God, chosen by God, comes and offers himself as a sacrifice. It's very significant when John points to Jesus, John the Baptist points to Jesus in the Gospel of John where it's recorded and and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, as the great high priest, offered himself as the sacrifice. His blood established the new covenant. Moses sprinkled the blood of animals over the people to establish the first, the old covenant. But Jesus, it's his blood applied to those who obey him with whom the new covenant is established. His resurrection and victory ensures that his reign and his mediation is eternal. When Aaron died, his mediation ended and a new priest had to come in and start fulfilling the duties. When the old covenant ended, the the sons of Aaron could no longer offer on behalf of the sins of the people. They could no longer mediate. Their priesthood ended and their work was no longer effective. But Jesus, because he is eternal, has an eternal priesthood. And so therefore he offers an eternal salvation. And what we'll see later when we get into 8, 9, and 10 is that his sacrifice was the last sacrifice 
because it was an eternal sacrifice. Eternal life came through the death of Jesus and that sacrifice is an unending efficacy for the sins of mankind. So what we conclude then from what we saw last week and what I'm reviewing here is that Jesus is fully qualified to serve as our mediator. The writer of Hebrews takes Old Testament, Old Covenant writings and knocks the legs out of the argument that Jesus is not qualified. But these verses also tell us here not only why Jesus is qualified, but why his priestly work is better than that of any descendant of Aaron. And that's because Jesus is a sinless priest. He's unlike Aaron in that Aaron sinned, Jesus never sinned. Someone once said, I read this long ago, that even the best of men are men at best. There was a time when I was very frustrated with some leaders who I answered to because I saw them behind the scenes, so to speak. I saw how they were when they were in private, so to speak. And I learned that what they said in front of everybody else was not quite the same as what they did behind, uh, behind the stage, if you will. And it really bothered me. I, I held them in high regard and it really bothered me. I was reading this week of um, Robbie Zacharyson, and you might be feel familiar with what's happened with him. Um, it, doesn't, it does not take away from what God has done in his life over the years. And it, it reminds me that God uses people in spite of themselves. Uh, we make the mistake of making idols and uh, people that we worship out of human beings instead of worshiping God. But the reality is that the best of men are men at their best. They're sinners, deeply flawed, flawed, all of us are. And it's easy to point fingers at people uh, and, and say, see how bad they really were. When, when it really is oftentimes a deflection of who we are as people and trying to excuse ourselves. But that saying applied fully to Aaron. As I've, as I've read Hebrews here, Hebrews 5, and I think about Aaron, I, I started thinking, you know, it must have been somewhat difficult at times for Aaron in his service as a priest. And his sons in their service as priests, if they were honest about themselves. Because all day, every day, people would come with their animals for sacrifice. But the reality was, is Aaron was just one of them. If, if we're honest about who we are, and we're honest about our sin, we become less likely to be very condemning of other people in their sin. Not to say we should excuse it, but we become less condemning. But if we're honest with what God has said as well in relation to our sin, I can tell you this firsthand that it becomes 
very difficult to preach, to communicate God's word when it relates to sin that needs to be corrected. Because the whole time I stand and talk to you, I'm standing here thinking of my own problems in relation to what I'm talking about. And in one sense, I dread doing this. And it's even worse when your family's sitting back there listening to you and they know who you are. But here's Aaron, who every day of his life is, and his sons are meeting with people who are coming because of sin and confessing their sins and looking to him as the mediator with God to find some level of forgiveness of sin and acceptance with God. And their confessions of sin, I have to believe, would have constantly reminded him of his own sin. All day long, every day. I wonder how often Aaron got frustrated because something didn't go right in the midst of an offering or one of his sons was doing something or made a mistake in the middle of the offering and anger, unrighteous anger welled up inside of him while he was offering sin on behalf of another person and he's realizing his own sin. How often Aaron in the midst of offering the sacrifices thought he was, should have had a little more power than what he actually had. Was, was thinking of Moses' failure as a leader and what Moses should have done differently and what he would have done. You say, Aaron didn't think that. Sure he did. Remember that little episode where Miriam and Aaron come and challenge Moses? Miriam ends up with leprosy. Those kind of things don't happen like that. Those things happen because of what's going on on a continual basis inside of the person. And how many times Aaron realized what the sin was while he was offering for other people. And, and I, I guess what I wonder, if it didn't just allow him to understand the sinners he served, but it made him at times feel like a hypocrite. That he, was, he knew how, how he was viewed by other people and yet knew who he really was. But as I thought about that, I thought about what was said here as well, and that is that our high priest Jesus is better than Aaron as a priest because he never had that problem. Jesus, our high priest, is better because he's sinless. Aaron would have been reminded of his sin throughout the day, every day. Yes, he could, he could relate, he could sympathize, but the writer of Hebrews says that he served in his weakness. They're speaking of a spiritual weakness. But our high priest, although he experienced temptation, he never sinned. He dealt with really blockhead disciples. There are a lot of times where Jesus just is stunned that they don't get certain things yet. 
after he's been with them for so long, even at the very end, when one of them says, show us the Father, and Jesus says, how long have I been with you and you haven't figured this out? You see me, you see the Father. Other times, with, with Peter, with his denial and his betrayal, Jesus was betrayed by Peter, felt all the feelings of betrayal, yet never sinned in his attitude towards his father or towards Peter. You ever been betrayed? Ever been betrayed by somebody you've been very loyal to? So here's Jesus who understands betrayal, but he's a better priest because he never sinned in that moment of being betrayed. When he offered up himself as our sacrifice, it was not for his sin, but for our sin. He took our sin upon himself. He owned it. He bore the penalty that we should have borne. But what's fascinating about Jesus in this regard to me is that although he never sinned, he's not out of touch with what we experience either. Because he came in human flesh, he did understand what it was like to be be betrayed. When you're betrayed, he knows exactly what that feels like. When someone wrongs you, he knows exactly what that feels like. When you are tempted to lust, he knows exactly what that feels like. There's a lot of people who debate whether or not Jesus could have ever sinned. And the debate is pointless in one sense. But the reality that gets missed in that debate is that Jesus, as I said before, does experience, he did experience every moment of temptation. He understood what it means that sin is pleasurable for a moment. And he was tempted by that pleasure. And I'm not making that up. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He was tempted in all ways like we are yet without sin. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and boasting in what you have. That means when the temptation came along to exalt himself ahead of the time, he didn't take it. But he felt the pull to brag about himself, to exalt himself, to make himself look better in people's eyes. When he was called an illegitimate son, And the feelings that would have come with that, he took it. But he felt all of the lure to the pleasure of saying, you're wrong and you're dead. All across the board, Jesus knows our weakness because he came from among us and he lived in human flesh. He understands all of our weakness in relation to temptation in ways that no other priest before him could. And the interesting statement here is, and it's it's, to some people it really trips them up, in verse eight, although Jesus was a son, 
he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. The author is not saying that Jesus was disobedient and became obedient. What it does communicate, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate is that Jesus learned how difficult obedience is in the midst of suffering. Jesus learned how difficult obedience is in the midst of suffering. Now someone might say, how could God learn anything? My brother, I told this to somebody, my brother called me years ago, decades ago, just called me out of the blue one day, and he said, I got a question for you. That was, that was, he said, hi, I got a question for you. That's how he always talked. I said, okay. He said, Jesus is, now, is omniscient, right? And I said, yeah. So there are passages where it says Jesus was amazed. Something would happen and Jesus was amazed. So okay. That means surprised. Huh. So here's the question. How could omniscient Jesus be surprised by anything? Talk to you later. Click. Hung up the phone. I, I was just sitting there going, I don't, I don't know. Thought about it for a few days. He called back later, a few days later, and he said, he said, you figure it out? I said, no. He said, here's the answer. Jesus set aside his divine powers and only exercised them when the Father allowed him to. How could Jesus learn anything as the omniscient, omnipotent God? Because he, in his human flesh, set aside his divine powers except when the Father willed him to use them. And so he grew up as a child learning and living sinless and learning obedience into his adulthood. Someone has said it this way. To say that Jesus learned obedience does not mean that he was formally disobedient any more than saying he became a merciful and faithful high priest means that he was formally callous or faithful, faithless. He learned how to obey in the anvil of human experience as he experienced life day by day. In particular, he learned obedience in his sufferings. When suffering strikes, human beings are inclined to do whatever it takes to avoid it. Does that sound familiar? When suffering strikes, human beings are inclined to do whatever it takes to avoid it, to find another path where there is refreshment. Jesus, however, learned how to trust God and do his will in the midst of his suffering. His first aim was not, to own, was not his own pleasure and comfort, but God's will. So Jesus learned in human flesh the feeling of when suffering touches our lives, that feeling of how do I get around this? How do I get by this? Not so much how do I get through this. That's not so much how we think as human beings. We're like, we're, we're like our, our new maps, our, our 
map applications on our phones that tell us that there's an accident ahead and tell us how to route around it. That's how we think. There's a traffic jam. Take this exit, go down this street, get around it, and it'll never bother you. But Jesus learned what it means to go through that suffering instead of going around it. And he learned what it means to grow in obedience to the Father in the midst of the suffering. And the suffering was intense. It tells us in verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Loud cries and tears. Have you ever gone through suffering to the point that it's produced loud cries and tears in you? I have. Some of you have. Maybe many of you have. We also know those of us who have prayed with loud cries and tears. Some of us know what it's like to be unfaithful and to sin in the midst of those loud cries and tears. Human flesh cries out, why me? Which is an interesting question if you really think about it. Because what you're asking is, why not someone else? Why me? But Jesus, in the midst of his loud cries and tears, and that doesn't seem to be limited. I mean, it makes you think immediately of the Garden of Gethsemane, but I don't think it should be limited to that. But our high priest who suffered in ways that we never could imagine suffered without sin. He never questioned the Father as to what he was doing, what he was thinking. He never pointed a finger and accused his Father. And what I find stunning in this passage is that suffering in ways we could never imagine and without sin, Jesus at the same time does not stand to condemn us because of our failure when we sin in our suffering. When we, maybe you're not like this, maybe it's just me, but it's so easy when you've gone through something really difficult, it's, it's really easy when someone else has what you perceive to be a minor bump in the road and they're falling apart and their world's coming unraveled for that minor bump in the road. It's so easy to say, what is wrong with that person? That's nothing compared to what I, that's nothing. 
Am I the only one who's ever done that? Or anybody else here? By the way, that's not right. Shouldn't do that. But you know, Jesus never does that. What does Jesus do when we're going through intense suffering or any kind of suffering? He prays on our behalf. He stands with the Father as our righteous advocate, according to 1 John chapter 2. He stands against the accuser who says, do you see what he's doing? Do you see what she's doing? And our righteous advocate, Jesus Christ, stands with the Father and pleads on our behalf. He doesn't condemn. He mediates as our high priest. He's not only able to sympathize with us, but I would argue that our high priest is better than any other priest because Jesus encourages us to look to him and become like him. You know, the best that Aaron could do was to say that this sacrifice is to point you to the promised coming one who will bring final relief. He will crush the serpent's head. That's the best he could do. The worst that Aaron could do would be to say, look at me, be like me. But Jesus, as our high priest, is better because he stands and says, become like me. Act like me, think like me, live like me. He reminds us that through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are free from the slavery of sin. We can have victory over sin and that it's actually possible to become like him. Years ago, decades ago now, I had a friend and we were talking and we were in the early 20s and we were talking one evening and I don't remember how we got on the topic or why we were talking about it, but he, he said something that has really stuck with me over the years. And at that time, I didn't know how to answer him. But he said, I don't believe that God actually wants us to become like Jesus because it's not possible. It's not possible to become perfect in this life, to be like Jesus in that way. So therefore, I don't believe that God actually calls us to be like Jesus. I remember we were sitting there. We'd actually been working out with weights and we were just sitting there afterwards talking. And I can see the room, everything. I didn't know how to answer that. I really wrestled with it. But what I came to understand many, many years later is that through Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we actually can have victory over sin. And we're called to be like Jesus because it's actually possible to become like Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Just let that sink in for a minute. I'm not arguing for sinless perfection. I'm not arguing that we are going to become sinlessly perfect in this life. What I am arguing is that we can become more like Jesus and we can continue to grow in our knowledge of Jesus and our similarity to Jesus from the inside out. We actually can change. We actually are expected to change. For Aaron to have stood up and said, be like me, it wouldn't have been hard to do, to become like Aaron. Now there was a big thing back when Michael Jordan was playing basketball of be like Mike. And kids all over the place were trying to learn how to do layups like him and shoot like him and do his moves. I don't know how many of them actually became like Mike, but a whole lot of them were trying and a lot of them that didn't have any potential to ever be like Mike were trying to be like Mike and thought they were. In my mind, if we can decide that we can be like a star basketball player, why are we then so against becoming like Jesus when we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us to become like him? And Jesus as our high priest is mediating and working on our behalf and and working with the Holy Spirit to make us more like himself. Why would we walk away from that and say, I can't, it's not possible. He has freed us, as I said, from the slavery of sin. It no longer has power over us. We are no longer in a place where we can only sin. We're in a place, according to Romans 6, where we can choose not to sin. We have that power. We can have victory over sin. We are told that he has given us victory. Through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we have victory over sin. And we are told that it is actually possible to be like him. Sure, the Bible also says that what we will be, we are not yet. And we will be like him when we see him. That's talking the finished product. But in the meantime, there's a lot of space to be becoming like Jesus. So he's a better high priest in that he did not sin and he stands as the one that we should worship. The one that we should want to become like. The one we should want to change into. And we need to remember also what he says in Hebrews 2 and verse 18. What the writer says. He says there that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let me leave you with this this morning. When you 
realize that you are being tempted to sin, what should be your response, your first response? Your first response should not be five steps to defeating sin. Your first response should be, Jesus, help me. You know where I am. You know what this is like. You understand the battle I'm having. Help me. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help me. You know what that brings us back to? We have a faithful and merciful high priest upon whom we need to be depending. And that cuts to our core because we don't want to be dependent upon anybody. It drives me nuts. I've said this before. It drives me nuts that people are shoveling my driveway. You know why it bothers me? Because it reminds me I'm dependent. It reminds me of my own frailty. It reminds me of my weakness. And I don't want to think of myself that way. But when it comes to sin and when it comes to temptation, we need to realize that without Him, we can do nothing. He is the source of our strength. He is our mediator when we sin. He is the one who upholds us. He is the one who encourages us. He knows how to help those who are being tempted. So where I want to leave this today, first, can I kindly encourage you to hear His voice, to listen, and not to harden your heart? Remember, that's where this all started. Listen today while you hear His voice. Don't harden your heart. And second, can I encourage you to run to Him for help to obey and not just to be relieved of your suffering? Most of our prayer time is absorbed with wanting relief. And I will never say it's wrong to ask for relief. The Bible doesn't say it's wrong. But in the midst of asking for relief, in addition to asking for relief, ask Him for help to obey in the midst of the suffering when it's not relieved. Third, I would ask you to consider how it might change the world's view of Christians, and more importantly, of our Father, if Christians learn to grow in obedience in the midst of loud cries and tears. That confuses human beings. And that opens wonderful doors of opportunity to speak to others about the goodness of God and Jesus. What would the family of God be like if the children of God blessed his name while suffering and not just when things are pleasantly resolved? And finally, I would say all of those things are possible because our older brother reigns sovereign and he mediates on our behalf forever and calls us for our, his own. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus to live in human flesh. We often think of his sacrifice, and in a moment we'll be gathering around the Lord's table to remember his death on our behalf and the blood that was shed. But help us to remember that not only did he die in human flesh, but he lived in human flesh. Help us to remember that we can, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the help of Jesus, help us to remember that we can respond correctly and not sin in the midst of difficulty, be it deep or not so deep. Father, often our sin comes in moments that are not intense suffering, that they're off the cuff, when we're caught off guard and something happens and the sin happens. Father, help us to learn obedience in our suffering like Jesus did. Help us learn not to sin in difficulty as Jesus did not sin. Help us to grow in the power and the fruit of the Holy Spirit And through that, help us to have lives that correspond to the truth of the gospel. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your son who died for us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who empowers us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.